Recording. Yeah, recording. 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 Oh, yeah. Got it out here. Summer gym makes me feel bad. A summer gym came sweeping in. No, I think anyone will agree with me. Unless you're like, if you're like, I don't know. I'm sorry if this happened to you. I'm sorry if you're this fucked up. If you're like 28, but you're like one of those, you're like one of those like 50 year old women who's cold all the time. Yeah, you probably love summer gym. You probably love it. You probably love it. Love being like made into being a normal temperature by summer gym. But me, me and the rest of the normal boys, we're into winter gym. Winter gym's the best shit in the world. Where you go in, it's like 30 degrees, 40 degrees. Go in, make yourself all all hot, bring your temperature up, and go out. You get your nicotine, and then it just you you reach an equilibrium that most people will only experience when they die. Boys, it's it's the holidays. It's Thanksgiving. It's Chapo. Uh, I hope everyone's thankful. Uh, in a little bit, I will be speaking with candidate for LA City Council's District 13. Yes, Hugo Soto Martinez. Uh, but before then, it's uh, it's guys chat. So first, first and foremost, it's at the top of my mind at this time of every year, boys, how are we interrogating and torturing our family members at dinner tomorrow? Well, um. For most Thanksgivings, a lot of people don't know this, but there are actually several Bergheim type clubs in Chicago. Um, and usually like everyone in Chicago does this the day after Thanksgiving. It's the one day of the year where you go clubbing with all your uncles. <laughs> but I'm not I'm not going unless they show me that they they got vaccinated. <laughs> Felix and Rod Blagojevich hitting all the clubs in Chicago yeah. on Thanksgiving. I think he's like a spiritually, spiritually like an uncle to me now, though. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. He's not by, not, certainly not by blood, but by spirit, absolutely. Uh, Rod Blagojevich and Felix will come to any Thanksgiving dinner, stick their finger in the gravy boat, and just go, mmm, <laughs> and then be out. Yeah. Yeah. I think I paid five grand to do a Thanksgiving dinner appearance, stick a wet finger in the gravy boat, lick it, go, mmm, and then just leave. I would, okay, you know, I wouldn't cameo, like nothing against people who are on there, like Tom, nothing against it. It's not my, my, my thing. But if there was something that was like above cameo where, yeah, you go to someone's family dinner and maybe cause an argument that ruins it and leaves. Yeah. <laughs> I think I'd be amazing at that. Uh, I'm planning on getting all of my anti-vax relatives into the basement toilet from Saw <laughs> and requiring them to go through gruesome uh, puzzles and, and bodily horrors in order to uh, get out. Uh, yeah. You can, you, can saw, you can saw your foot off at the ankle. Or cut your cut or get you know, a vaccine. Or get a yourself option. to Dr. Fauci. Yeah. What if there was like a liberal saw? Oh God! Like you got to do. Like you have to. Uh, you have to read right frailty before like the explosive timer goes off in your head. Or yeah, something. that's what I was thinking. It would be like race to dinner, but like life or death. I did see. I did see before I uh, started recording today. Uh, someone was saying, "I I can't wait because there's someone going to be at Thanksgiving dinner who's going to let it slip that they were at the Capitol on January 6th, and then their nieces or nephews are going to drop a dime on them to the FBI." And I was just thinking, "Yeah, I I, I really hope that happens. That's cool. Yeah, that's just classic <laughs> yeah, that's... curb style hijinks. Yeah, 
Uh, I'm going to actually, I think Thanksgiving, I'm going to tell my parents uh, that I, I'm going to tell my mom that I was at January 6th and I'm just telling her this for the first time. Yeah. <laughs> I, um, I, I called the FBI on one of my uncles and said he was at January 6th and he got sexed into the Aryan Brotherhood in holding. That's not praxis. The, the quickest way it's ever been done. Okay. So the uh, torturing relatives on uh, Thanksgiving, check that off the list. Okay. Here, here is, here's an important question. What's, one Thanksgiving side dish that you need and what's one that you keep? I'd see, I'd understand. <laughs> I wish this phrase made more sense to me because I get it. You're telling somebody keep it. But to me, I hear it and they both sound like you like the thing. <laughs> you got to get remember like who's offering you it though. So like, let's say I'm offering you the, the cranberry sauce. You go, oh, I need that. Or you're like, keep it keep the cranberry sauce but that's just it there's nobody offering it to you it's just like a concept like here are side dishes there is no offerer so who's to keep it uh the person the it's just keep it on the table because i'm not putting it on my plate i need either i need it on my plate or i'm keeping it in the refrigerator or the garbage where it belongs well the answer is green beans and uh, also, honestly, anything with yams and marshmallows get them both out of here <laughs> you don't like the green bean casserole Matt? mm-hmm no, thank you. Yeah, that is Catherine's favorite Thanksgiving side dish. That's sicko shit, honestly. See, yeah, I don't see how you couldn't like the one that just like soupy bread. I'm I'm making stuffing right now. Yeah, that's I, a, no stuffing rules. Get yeah, out no, of here. That's I, one. I, I will, that's I will not. One. I will not brook any anti anti stuffing anti anti revisionist stuffing thought. Get it out. Yeah. Keep it. No, stuffing is a key component to the whole thing. I mean, I'm getting rid of the turkey before I'm getting rid of the stuffing. Turkey, you know, it's it's a it's a holiday bird. You know, a lot of people talk shit about turkey, but, you know, if you have it once or twice a year, you know, I, I think it's good. It's it's a it's a vehicle for the cranberry sauce and the gravy. This is neither here nor there. I just want to say, like, ham sucks dick. Like most yeah, I, people are eating yeah. in America. It's just like it's just like a wet, sweet loaf of shit. Yeah, it's, it's like, it's, fuck it's, you. It's the sweetness and the way you just sort of carve off slices of it. Like, you know, ham in terms of a sandwich. Sure. But like, why? Why would you serve like a big glazed ham at like a big family function when you could just make like a roast pork shoulder? Yeah, no, that's true. The uh, the the ham really only shines the day after on a roll with horseradish. If you're gonna make a meal, yeah, pork shoulder, way to go. What are you doing? It's the crispy skin on the outside. You know, put yeah, put that in an oven for like ten, twelve hours. I mean, I think you know it's time intensive, but it's very low effort. So, yeah. Will Menneker holiday tip number one: keep the ham need the roast pork absolutely i mean it's essentially they are the same animal though but i mean it's just the roast yeah. pork it's just it's just it's such a it's such a heartier it's such a more satisfying dish ham is just such a basic bitch ass meat it's kind of wild like how the hell come now how 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 come it is that now in in the in the 21st century we know hey if you have brussels sprouts uh cut them in half and roast them or or uh saute them do not boil them in a pot of water. <laughs> yeah. How do we? How did it take us that long to figure that out? Because when I was a kid, that's the only way you could get Brussels sprouts. Brussels sprouts were like the joke dish that like every every yeah, kid was tortured they were just with. Boiled. Your parents would be like, "Oh, eat but your Brussels like, sprouts." The ability to do that existed, and yet I no one ever did. I do not understand that. And the same thing with like uh, pork based uh, like holiday dishes. Like that ham is. The least flavorful, it's it's the least, and it's not like it's easier to make than the other ones, and yet for a long time, it was, yeah, that's it. If you're going to put a pork in an oven for a long time, it's got to be a big glistening ham. And then we're like, oh yeah, there's this pork shoulder, 
That was there the whole time. What the fuck? What happened is what I don't understand. I mean, I think that like Americans were less picky when everyone was allowed to smoke. And then the more and more <laughs> smokers' rights got taken away, the more like stupid kitchen Honestly, bullshit we had to do. That's a very good point. Like, as if you're smoking up two packs a day, you don't you care don't taste if the anything. Brussels sprouts yeah. are boiled. You can't taste anything anyway. Everyone's everyone's always like, you know, bitching about smokers, secondhand smoke, and all this shit. Well, what about the reduced stress that they put on the chief cook of the family? It's a good point. In the, very low stakes. Yeah, in the 1950s, a typical dinner was like, you know, like just like a bag of boiled ground beef. <laughs> nice white bread with a little canola <laughs> oil poured on it. Mm-hmm. Some butter that you leave out all day, like all those people do. That's how you're supposed to no, do it, Felix. It's really I'm not. Sorry. It's really not. <laughs> yes, if you, you, I bet, why do you think the butter wait, wait, wait. dish exists? Oh, yeah. let, let me get my let me get my hot butter and on my way to summer. Why do gym. you think that there is such a thing as a butter dish if you're not supposed to leave it you're out? Supposed to leave it because out for weeks. Women, women are buying like stupid bullshit for everything. Women have like, women are like, oh, like don't don't move that. That's the windowsill pillow. <laughs> Why wouldn't they have a butter dish? The fuck are you talking about? My mom got me a butter bell for Christmas last year. It's, what you, what the fuck is that? It's like it's just like a it's a specialized butter dish where like you you stick a pad of butter in it and you flip it upside down and you keep it in this like little dish of water so it, it maintains a sort of perfect temperature for the butter at all times. But then of course I just forgot about it and like three weeks later I just open it up and it's this like disgusting fucking rotted mess. But I mean that is the key to the butter dish. It, 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 there is a there is a there is a, a terminator on the date by which you can have delicious um just sort of spreadable butter. I've got my butter on the counter right now, Felix. You can't stop me. All right. I mean I will I will say I like did try it, and similarly I did forget about it. It's not something you remember. <laughs> okay. Well, see, here we go. It's just not something, if you're not in the habit of doing it, you, you're not going to remember it. And I just, I don't know. How often do you really need like spreadable butter on demand all the time? If you're doing toast at any kind of frequency, if you're making toast in, in, in your breakfast scenario I, I, with anything like, like even more than like twice a week, you absolutely want that spreadable butter. You don't want to be scraping that yeah, frozen it's, fucking it's, butter it's, across your bread. It's, it's it's destroying the bread as you're trying to spread it. It's just like, you know, or, or you could just like carve off a little pat, stick it on the toast and wait for it to melt a little bit. But come on, I'm a busy man. Yeah, I want my toast now. That's classic toast. That's how co- toast is always depicted in fiction with a nice little <laughs> melty square. <Perfectly> square. Yeah. <laughs> not like a yellow mound. You think Huckle, when Huckle bought all that party food in Richard Scarry's tour de force, Huckle's adventures, do you think he was just like leaving butter outside like an asshole all day? No, probably not. And Huckle was a pretty selfish person. Huckle was probably the most selfish person who lived in busy town. <laughs> oh, God. Uh, God, I just I, I hope I don't get into an argument with my uncles about Huckle at Thanksgiving. It always comes up. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, Jesus. I mean, I remember it just... Just last year, everyone's got everyone's got everyone's got one cantankerous uncle that will make a point at the Thanksgiving table to like try to make the case, try to try to bait you into an argument that Kendra Lust is a better milf than Lisa Ann. And I just you know, I, I, I'm, I'm not rising to the occasion this year. That's all I'm saying. I, I will take the bait. Family is too important to get argue over minor differences, even if they are quite, quite major. It's annoying, man. It's like, you know, you have these conservative uncles. I have these conservative uncles who, like, they never, like, liked rap or any rappers before. But now that, like, Boozy is feuding with Barney, they love Boozy. (laughs) 
Well, you know, Barney shouldn't have come out as pro-vax. That's true. <laughs> but Boozy's still holding out for the, uh, the pure bloods. <laughs> I don't know if anyone's asked Boozy about vaccination. I guess no one bothered. I guess it's like he's the main thing he talks about. He talks about it so much that people are like, I mean, we're not even going to get to that one. I know Boozy is very pro Kamala Harris. Like he loves Kamala. Is that true? Yeah. No, he like he like loves Kamala. He's like kind of whatever on Joe. But when like Kamala, when, when they won, he was like, do you remember the song Independent? Uh, no, mm. don't remember it. No, it was like a hit. It was like a boozy and webby song about like independent women. He like released just like a YouTube video. That's like a slideshow of Kamala Harris with independent playing because it's like about women with jobs. <laughs> and it's like, that's one thing you can definitely say about her. Yeah, she she is working. Yeah. She's walking uh, across the portico every day. Yeah. She's walking a lot. That's the one thing I know about her. She walks. That should have been the... I just searched his Twitter and vaccine and got nothing. So I, he's probably... You know what? I bet like if I asked him about it, I would be the first guy who's ever... No, wait. Lil Boozy hosts COVID-19 vaccine event at Southern University. Okay. Wow. Yeah. No. Okay. Good for Boozy. I think that... I think we can all agree that cancels out all the other stuff that he said. It's really whatever. Everyone's got good and bad in them. Uh, now I'm imagining uh, a rapper who like, you know, he's like, uh, uh, fuck Joe Brandon, uh, fuck Kamala Harris. But you're know, like, I ride with Doug Emhoff. <laughs> <laughs> Doug Emhoff is a G. Feeling like Doug for, <laughs> for his husband. Second there husband. Ha- Dude, there has to be. There has to be like we need uncle reports like there we need to start like a website that's like a fe- like those terrorism tips website the federal government does but it's like uncle tips and it's like if you have like some dumbass relative who's like I hate Joe Biden like let's go Brandon I hate like I hate Kamala I hate the daughter even I like Dr Jill though awesome like just a we- Dr Jill is I mean she's a baddie yeah she looks great certified baddie I bet there are a bunch of stupid ass Americans like that. Dr. Jill is also the first Italian president. She is. No, she's what what I said about her last summer. She's going to be Italian Edith Wilson. Yep, she's doing (laughs) it. Yeah, she's stirring the sauce right now. Getting ready for the getting ready for the Thanksgiving uh, the pasta. Well, meanwhile, Joe is. uh, They got to make sure he doesn't just walk into the oven. (laughs) They like like it is so fail on Joe's part that he's like four years older than Mitt Romney. Like, they don't, like, forget, like, age range. They look like a different species. (laughs) Mormons, man! And and he doesn't drink is the other crazy thing. It's not like Biden's brain has been, like, pickled, you know. He's been fucking straight edge his whole life. And he is just a fucking walking mummy. Yeah. Uh, But he did it in the Catholic way, the Catholic weepy way, which is why now he's a a walking disaster. Mitt Romney also hasn't drunk his whole life, but uh, did it the Mormon style and is... Ready to go. He, he's he's ready to sweep uh, Kristen Cinema off her feet. Yeah, like Joe Biden's so fell. He got fucking wet brain from ice cream. <laughs> <laughs> fucking dumbass. And it's like his his heaven that he's like looking forward to is like that he goes to see a minor league baseball game with his dad one last time, and his dad still yeah. dies the day after, and the team still loses. But like they learned some like bullshit Catholic <laughs> lesson. About how it's good to lose. Field good, of ice it's good for your family to die. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas uh, Mitt Romney's afterlife, he's basically Thanos uh, wooing Lady Death, who will be Kristen Cinema. Mitt Romney is going to live, like, he will be in the Marvel. Like, that afterlife is Marvel. Marvel, like, stole all their yeah. shit from Mormons. Mormons stole a little from Absolutely. Jews. New gods. Yeah. 
Latter-day Saints, new gods, same Mormons thing. were like, this is cult, This is why cultural appropriation is good. They stole some of their swag from us. Yes. We, you know, in the form of Stanley, the famous comic book artist, stole all the Marvel shit from Mormons. It's true. This also reminds me of something that I feel like I didn't properly express uh, in the internals episode is uh, that Kingo, who we all thought of as like just a, a punchline, funny name played by a schlubby comedian who uh, destroyed his heart with, uh, with steroids for some reason. But the actual character in the movie is the most evil character to ever appear in the Marvel universe. Like he is by far the most demonically evil character because at the end of the movie, there's like a big fight between the two sides of externals over whether to destroy earth or save it. And he literally pieces out because he doesn't care enough. And it's like, we talked about that on the, the show, but what I think we need to emphasize is after the big fight, when the Eternals save earth, which they shouldn't have, they were preventing the, uh, the culmination of the historical dialectic. They just say, Hey, Kingo, how you doing? They just let him back in. That's genuinely terrifying. Cause he's like, he's way eviler than Thanos. And I, and I was thinking about it and, the thing that kind of bums me out is why would you do that? Right. Why would you make him do that? And maybe there was a need for him to be written out or something, but the way they did it, it makes it feel like they needed to give like the millennial Marvel viewer, someone to relate to among the Eternals. <laughs> like, let's be real. You're not superheroes. If you have like a real crisis, you're probably just going to peace out and convince yourself that it's not worth fighting over. And that's okay. <laughs> So I hope that uh, in the next one, they correct this by having Kingo be like torn apart by like electromagnetic forces or something, just sent to some sort of horrifying eternal hell. Because otherwise, I think this might be the first case ever of movies like negatively influencing people. Because if, if, if you want people to be like Kingo, I think you're generally uh, degenerating the moral atmosphere of the country. I think people should be like Kingo at Thanksgiving. And just be like, I don't need to argue with my fucking family. Well, that's true. There's no, st that's the thing. There's no stakes at Thanksgiving dinner. Just let them say whatever they want. That's the crazy thing about the Thanksgiving dinner shit is that, you know, your relatives, you know, that they're not movable, right? You know, enough to know why they believe what they want to believe and that it's motivated by their personalities, not by facts. So then what does it matter what they think? Well, I just don't get the, I, I guess it's, you're like proving your own worth that you're like up to the task of defending your beliefs it's up to the task of defending your own beliefs, but also like doing the important work of converting your, <laughs> your parents or relatives to the, uh, the side of uh, truth and justice. I let, uh, just to be safe. I, I asked DSA PSL and ISO to table in my mom's hallway. <laughs> <laughs> We're just going to oh, try all and the Spartacists. They're handing out newspapers. <laughs> Like, did you guys see, do it? Did you guys see the thing where the uh, women's march sent out an email apologizing for like another email <laughs> where they were like, "Our average, our average uh, monthly donation this month was fourteen dollars and ninety two cents," and then they were like, "Oh shit! Oh shit! Oh shit! We're sending this out Thanksgiving week fourteen ninety two. What's that? It's when Columbus uh, turned the oceans red with the blood of indigenous <laughs> peoples, and." You know, they were like, uh, we, you know, this is insensitive of us. Uh, this was, you know, an oversight. We should have realized that, you know, that, that's not a good number 
is not a good number. It's one of the bad numbers. Can you imagine if it had been (laughs) $14.88? Oh, my God. They probably would have had an easier time just being like, that's an oversight. But I just want to make it clear here. I don't buy it. I don't buy their explanation for a second. This is 100% intentional on, on the Women's March part it's violent they do it because they 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 support the colonization of the western hemisphere by the forces of violent european uh white supremacy and i won't be giving any more money to this organization why are you giving money to the women's march they They only had the one they got to keep marching matt but they haven't there's been no more marches yeah there have been zero marches since the the first one what are they doing what are they doing with the money Uh, just putting into sensible sneakers um (laughs) the water along the walking routes or the marching routes you know you got to keep Got to keep people activated. You know, you can't just go, you can't just go home after an election. They're just assuming that Trump's going to win again and that they're going to do another one after he gets inaugurated. I, 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 and you know what? They probably will. And, the, and some of the same people will show up. And, and none of them will reflect on the fact that they did that already and it didn't do anything. They should, um, if Biden runs again and wins, which, you know, honestly, I think he's got it in him. Um, there should be a men's march. But not like the women's march. Like, I'll be honest, when the first Women's March was happening, I really didn't kind of know what the deal was. I'm going to be honest. Like, it was just like, um, it's not like March for Our Lives or any of that shit where it's like there's a, it was just like, hey, it's woman time. And I even saw like, I even saw some people being like, you can be a Republican and go to the Women's March. And I was like, okay, what's the point? Like, what, what, what are we doing here? Like, walk, walk, pick up chicks. Like, yeah, walk. Yeah, I guess so. Walking's free, though. But I just think, you know, there should be like a chill there should be a men's drive if Biden wins again. How about <laughs> yes. that? Yes, yes. Like sort of similar to the beautiful boaters, but on land. Yeah, and oh just you know, a one man for every car, getting on the Beltway. Just it's called the Beltway because it's a loop. You know, so you just drive in circles on the Beltway. Sort of honk your horn, maybe play a little little, little Creedence Clearwater or Steve Miller band. Just sort of bump that out of your speakers, and you know, just you know. Half of this country is men, too. Yeah. Let's not forget that. Let's not forget that this holiday season. I think, honestly, if we just start teasing the men's drive, we will do our job of sheepdogging people to the Democratic Party. Men, they got to drive. Yeah. They got to drive. They got to drive together. Let's get a huge. But they'll never ask for directions. Am I right, ladies? <laughs> yes, sir. Just a, just a huge. Uh, I, I want to be the uh, like the, the, the doof guy from Fury Road, but for the Biden <laughs> man man drive. Just, just like, you know, like no flames, just, just Steely Dan, just Peg. I think prowlers are going to come back in a big way soon. What, like uh, 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 people stalking women after hours? <laughs> what are you no, yeah, about? yeah, peeping toms. It's their time. <laughs> creepers we've heard, we've heard of all the other perverts. <laughs> well, now it's time for the classic to come back. More women are living in basement apartments easier than ever for freaks and creepos to look in. No, I'm talking about the Plymouth Prowler. You know what I'm talking about? Is that like the the PT Cruiser? No, no. Look at look it up. Like everyone's yeah, gonna, it up. everyone's gonna know what I'm talking about. The Plymouth. Well, we should make this the episode image so people like know what I'm like. Like this was, dude. This was the hottest car in the streets. Oh yeah 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 yeah, yeah. with like the, the open wheel wells like the like on the sides. Yeah yeah. Isn't this sick? They should make an electric one of these. They should. And actually, like this, this was like let's see what what. Like when, when was this big? This is like early 2000s, like late 90s. Late 90s, early 2000s. They stopped making 2000s. it in 2002. Like 9 11 stopped the dream of the Prowler. I think we need to go back to an era where like car manufacturers just decided to start making cars that look like they belong in Batman, the animated series. You know, just sort of like old, old style cars. Absolutely. 
Absolutely. Well, uh, did you guys see that concept car that I think it was Hyundai? Yeah, yeah, out? yeah. And it looked like it looked sort of the old, more boxier. Like, yeah, it looked, looked really good, yeah, actually. That, 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 well, I. I was thinking about that today. I was, I, I, I was, uh, I was, I saw a uh, an old uh, Beamer, you know, the old boxy like yeah, 70s yeah, yeah. Beamer, and it, it hit me like the reason that now that's what they're going to start making cars look like is that those used to be aesthetically unappealing to people. They called them boxy. They were like, ew. But now, since every car made mostly in the last thirty years has been like that same teardrop shape. The only ones that stand out are those old boxy cars. And so it looks cool, which is means now they're going to make a bunch of them and then everyone's going to get those and then they're going to suck again. Well, it would, the, it would the, it'll be enough to get people to the buy. The new Hyundai uh, concept car was an electric car. And the reason yes. why every car made over the last 30, 40 years has the same sort of like pill, teardrop, soft edges is because of fuel efficiency. Because of like you know aerodynamics, it like you know or, or whatever, yeah. like it, they're more fuel efficient. There's less um, wind, wind resistance, I suppose. Sounds yeah. like that sounds like voodoo math to me. <laughs> so I don't believe in aerodynamics. Yeah, made up. <laughs> they need to bring back boxy planes. You know, like the red baron. Absolutely, <laughs> yes. They need to bring back uh, triple the the, the, the three, three wing the uh, triplane three wings. Yeah, yeah. The the, the triple bo- the boxy guys. If you really need to go home to argue with your uncle, like you moved to New York from Ohio, you have to you have to walk on the wing the entire way there on a triple decker plane. <laughs> you have to. But, a guy in a scarf has to fly you there. <laughs> Remember that when our pilots used to have scarves. <laughs> scarves and goggles you're playing ping pong on the wing with one of your fellow passengers it's great yeah you can smoke again you know now it's like you if you don't put on your mask and your your seatbelt, you will be executed in the airport back then you could just walk on the plane you know why because everyone could smoke everyone could just buy anything at a at a drugstore you had no sense of smell or fear everything was fine the sense of smell is actually very closely linked to your sense of fear. So kill your sense of smell, kill, kill the fear inside you. It's the, it's, fear is the smell killer. I will smell, <laughs> I'll, I'll let all the smells pass through me, and at the end there will be only me and my smell. That is, I mean, it's kind of true. Like, okay, skunks and then like some other members of the musclehead family and other animals have a little like stink sack. People think it's pissed because it's like near the urethra, it's like near the crotch. No, it's actually they, squirt. Yeah, it's squirt. That's what women are doing. <laughs> That's what women are doing all the time, is marking their territory with fear juice. And it's actually, if you make a girl squirt, it means that she hated it. <laughs> that her body responded to you like, you know, she was a sable and you were like a tiger killing her. It's, it's like, you know, it's like squid ink, you know, it's a fight or flight response. Yeah, but that is like, it's just liquid fear. It's just like, it's the fear scent. And it's like, you know, Sable's, when when a Sable finds some food he likes and he can't bring it all back to his little hole, he um, he takes what he can go, but then he just sprays his fear gel everywhere. And he's like, okay, I'll get it later, but everyone's going to be too afraid to get here. Uh, well, uh, I'm, I'm sure things happened um, uh, politically this week, but it's the fucking holidays. Let's go to this interview with... Uh, Hugo for LA City Council. Happy Thanksgiving, everybody. Happy Thanksgiving.
Okay. Uh, hello, listeners. It's me, Will Meneker. Uh, if you've been listening to the show for a while now, you will know that we are one for one on our uh, L.A. City Council guests uh, joining the Los Angeles City Council. And it is my distinct pleasure to announce that we are doubling down on this strategy and to welcome to the show candidate for L.A. Los Angeles City Council District 13. It is Hugo Soto Martinez. Hugo, thank you so much for being with me. Yeah, thanks so much for, for having me. I'm very happy to be here. Uh, Hugo, I want to talk a little bit about your campaign. But before we get into that, I was just wondering if you could just talk a little bit about um, the Los Angeles that you grew up in and uh, like what, what led you into politics. Yeah, sure. So I was, um, I was born and raised in uh, South Central Los Angeles. Uh, my parents were immigrants. Uh, and when they came to this country, they became street vendors. Uh, so they sold fruit, you know, in, in Los Angeles, all over the city. And uh, when I was 16 years old, I got hired uh, at a non-union hotel and uh, worked there through college. And uh, right as I was going to graduate, there was an organizing drive uh, to bring the union in. And uh, it was the most transformational experience I've ever had as a, as a, as a person of color in the city because we literally took power away from the company and in the process won an incredible uh, union contract. Uh, you know, just really, it was really transformative. We, 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 we took control of our own shop, our own workplace. And uh, it's something that I've wanted to do for a very long time. And so now 15 years later, here I am, uh, the city has changed a lot. Uh, we see grassroots candidates uh, fighting and winning such as Nithya Raman. And so we want to continue on that uh, amazing work that's been at the grassroots level. And I think we're going to win uh, another seat here for the people in the city. Um, yeah, it says here, I mean, you spent the last what 15 years with Unite Here uh, Local 11. Like, wh- what, what did you like? What did you learn in, in your experience of organizing that um, like made you want to take the next step into like a, a different a different arena? Yeah, I, I always say that it's, um, you know, there's a, a sort of a mantra that one of my mentors taught me. He said, what you win depends on the power that you build, right? And so I think that in, in the city of Los Angeles, uh, we see so much activity happening uh, across the city where I think we've built enough power where we can start taking, you know, the city council seats. And so I look at my district that has a ton of uh, DSA members, uh, a lot of people who are active in the community. Uh, you know, I come from labor. And so uh, I say, you know what? I think we can bring all these coalitions together. and. Uh, and take that seat for the people. So that's a lesson that I learned as an organizer. Uh, when workers come together, you know, they beat a corporation. And so it depends on the power that you build. You build enough power, you can, you can take as much as you want. You got to keep building that power. How do you take the lessons that you've learned organizing workers and organizing the workplace and apply it to, I don't know, attempting to, uh, I don't know, I don't know, organize voters or organize a campaign or just get, get people, get voters in LA's uh, 13th district um, a part of this campaign? Well, you know, one of the biggest things that I've learned as, as an organizer is that it's never about the individual, uh, that it's always about the collective and the involvement, the involvement of that collective to a greater goal. And so, uh, you know, one of the things that we're talking a lot about in this district is how we're going to take that organizer's approach to engaging voters, but involving them in larger policy fights, uh, you know, and through that process of fighting and collective struggle, they're going to learn, they're going to grow, they're going to get trained. Uh, and we want them to be part of this, this democratic process, just the way we're involved in the union. It, it's just people doing work and going out there and talking to people, mobilizing people. 
Uh, and so I think that's the vision we're, we're really trying to put out for people. Uh, you've been quoted as saying uh, the union is a vehicle for permanent struggle. Uh, what do you mean by that? Yeah. So like, you know, when we won, when I, when me and my coworkers won the union, one thing that I didn't realize at the time is that it was going to allow us to continuously grow, continuously fight the boss and just make improvements over time. Right. And so I'll give you an example. Uh, it's, it's been union now for 15 years when the pandemic hit, our workers were laid off, many, you know, high percentage of, of people were laid off, but because they had a union, because we had a union, it allowed us to fight that corporation in the moment of that need during the height of the pandemic. And so as a result of it, they were able to negotiate, uh, you know, to have family health, to maintain their family health insurance through the period of the pandemic. Uh, I don't think a single worker lost their health care during that time. And so it, there's a sense of permanency when you have a union. It like allows you to continue to fight in, until that place uh, is no longer there. And so uh, we have long history of, of these workplaces having 40, 50 years and, you know, workers come and go. But the struggle of the working class continues because you have a union within that property. I mean, uh, you mentioned um, hotel workers during COVID. Could you talk a little bit about like um, the unique situation that COVID presented as, a, as, as it related to um, hotel employees, um, but also some of the some of the interesting plans that are, are um, regarding um, the use of hotels for housing at a time when most hotel rooms are empty. So the the pandemic hit our industry the hardest, with, without a doubt. Um, you know, you think about who was affected: tourism large conventions, large sporting events, uh, those are our members. And so during the height of the pandemic, we had 95% unemployment, massive, massive unemployment. Um, and so it was incredibly devastating. Um, you know, we did a lot of things to, to push back and we, we did as best as we can. You know, many of them have returned and we passed laws in the city and we, we did a ton, a ton of them, a ton of work for protection. But, you know, but during this time, you know, it's it's like the hotels were empty. <laughs> they were completely empty. Some some even closed. They, they were just completely closed. And so, you know, during the time there was a, a movement to commandeer the hotels because you know, why would you have an empty bunch of empty rooms, right? When we have a ton of unhoused in the streets. And so, um, you know, that's something we're talking a lot about even now because even though the the places aren't shut down, uh, you know, they continue to be at. Um, you know, half occupancy or very low occupancy. And, and there's still some hotels that are closed. So um, they could certainly be used right now to, to protect the most vulnerable. This is referring to uh, Project Home Key, right? Yeah. This is about like LA, LA is getting about a billion dollars in uh, state money to purchase unwanted hotels and apartment and office buildings to convert them into housing. Um, like what, what's the status of Project Home Key right now? Yeah, so so there, there was home key and then there was room key. Room key was the like, temporary uh, using of the hotels, and home key is all this money that you know they want to use to buy, um, you know, motels or, or hotels. Um, you know, I don't I don't think there's been many purchases of this, um, and so I, I don't know. I haven't heard of a of a single hotel in at least that I'm aware of, uh, you know, that has been bought and converted over to any kind of housing for that house. Uh, but like, I mean, th this is in the context of, I, I believe LA has something like $2 billion in subsidies to build hotels um, for things like the, you know, their Olympics bid and, and tourism and things, things like things like that at a time when there's something like a uh, 500,000 uh, like housing unit deficit in, in Los Angeles. I mean, this is a matter of using public money 
to create private hotels that are now going unused when there is a homelessness crisis and a housing crisis in Los Angeles. Yeah, no, I, I, the, the, the idea is great. I just don't think that the, I don't think there's the political will, right? It's, it's like when, when we're doing Project Room Key and it was to temporarily use the, the hotels to house people, literally they were like at 10% or close. In, in my opinion, it was like foolish to walk away from that money because they were going to pay, you know, like as if a tourist was there, that's the, they were going to pay that money. They, they didn't do it. And I, and I think it was just a question of, of question the way people view, like the way owners view their private property. It's like, this is my property. I'm going to do what I want with it. Right. It, it, they never view it as something that they could be good for the public. Um, let alone commandeering. I think that's even, you're, you're going bridge way too far, right? Because now you're going to have them screaming about, you know, private property rights and things like that. But, um, you know, this is a moment where we have to view, you know, we have to view this as, as, as it relates to power, right? Like, do, does the council, uh, you know, going to use their power uh, despite the interest of, of the private private enterprise, right, uh, for the public good, and and I still to this day, I, I think that the answer is no. I think they're just they're just not going to do it. They're gonna they're gonna listen to big business. Um, to to the question of uh, building power, I want I want to go back to talk about um, unite here a little bit. Um, could you describe what unite here's rank and file strategy is compared to um, uh, other unions, for instance? Yeah, sure. I love I love our union. Uh, you know, if if um, one thing that's very different about Unite Here Local Eleven and right Unite Here internationally, right, because there's they're, they're in different cities, is that if you if you walk into a staff meeting, a Unite Here staff meeting in any city, you're gonna walk in that room and you're gonna see organizers who used to be part of the industry. Just in the, the just in, in the team that I'm in, it is X housekeepers it is at people who used to be cooks people who used to be uh front desk agents uh it, that is who is part of the of of who organize who organizes full-time is paid to organize the workers and so our strategy of the rank and file is constantly looking for new leaders training them developing them and pushing them along a path where they can continue to grow and be and be stronger and be bigger leaders and so I don't think there's a lot of unions out there that, that think that way. And so, you know, one of the, one of the beautiful anecdotes is, you know, uh, many years ago, we had like sort of this crisis in the union that we had to send out all these organizers all over the, all over the country. Like, I think we must have sent like 15 to 20 organizers just from local level. But because we had so many trained leaders working, you know, in the rank and file that we were able to pull out those 15 and those 15 filled up all the spots of, uh, of the people that had gone. And I know that there are very, very few unions that say they can say they have that kind of a deep bench, right? We can just pull out people who are ready to fight and ready, ready to train and ready to go. And so uh, we're always doing that, identifying, uh, developing and training people like at all levels, no matter where their leadership is at. So like when you're, when you're uh, engaging in these organizing efforts, sometimes at places where, you know, you don't want to let management know, it's sort of like you're trying to keep it under wraps for a little bit. You go to these job sites. I mean, like, what do you look for in a potential leader or like so someone who can do, and do, the, do this work of organizing? Like, I mean, what, do you, what are you looking for? And, like, what, and also, like, what are you hearing from these people that like, you're trying to respond to? Yeah, so one of the, you know, when we're organizing a non-union workplace, I think having the definitions of what is a leader is important. Right. Uh, people sort of sometimes look for the most outspoken or the most bumptious, right? Not, not the way you should view a leader. A, a leader is 
is it has a very simple definition. Can this person move other people into action? That is the only definition of a leader. Can this person move another person into action? Because a leader is someone that can mobilize, that can influence, that can maintain the solidarity. And so if that person can move another person into action, regardless of their personality or they're shy or more outspoken, if they can move them into action, they are a leader and a person absolutely has to be recruited onto the committee uh, to be part of the fight. Um, and so we had to just always recruiting leaders, always recruiting people that can move other people into action. And I'm just going to talk a little bit about the importance of like what, what, what a committee means for, for Unite Here or other union organizing efforts. Like, like what, what is a committee and why is it important for a union effort? The committee and building the committee and developing and training the committee is, is the most essential thing in, in the kind of organizing that, I've, that I have done. Uh, you know, when you go to these workplaces, you know, I don't know any of the workers. I just know there's 150 workers there, but you build intimate relationships. You get to know a lot of people. But as you do it, you're always looking for people who have that leadership, right? Can they move other people into action? And it's always it always breaks down to like one for every 10 people. It's just kind of the ratio of the world. <laughs> it's just kind of the way it works, right? And so you're looking for that one leader for every 10 people. And what you do is you get all these leaders together, you recruit all of them, and then that becomes sort of the the engine of the organizing drive. It, it is those leaders. So, so that one person is responsible for 10 people. Correct. And then you're going to bring in those one, you bring in 10 people and then what you're really bringing in is a hundred. Correct. That's right. That's, that's basically it. Right. And so then that, that committee now, sometimes that committee can be from different departments and, you know, they might not know each other, but you got to bring that committee together and build that community, build that cohesiveness of that, of that core. And if you can do that and you can build that, you're unstoppable. It doesn't matter what the companies can do. Uh, if you have the people who move other people into action, you're, you're going to win every single time. Um, so like, the other thing I'm curious about is like, okay, so you, you've been across the table at these, at these, you know, negotiation sessions. I mean, like who comes into these negotiations and you're sitting across from the table? Uh, what's that like? What is that, let that give and take process like? And like, do, do you see any similarities between that experience and, and that of running for office or politics? Ah, yeah. So, being being in that room is, I mean, I'll tell you like my first experience with it was it really revealed who has power in, in the corporation. Because, you know, you're used to seeing your general manager, food and beverage director, whatever. And then, you know, you, you see them and like, oh, that's a very powerful person. But what you realize is that when it's time to bargain and negotiate, they actually don't have that much power. They're just kind of like tools of the corporation. Uh, and so they bring in like some, you know, big finance guy, or it's usually a guy, you know, just, just kind of corporate world. It's always usually white men, um, you know, they bring in their lawyer and you see like who really, who really moves things for the corporation. Um, and so uh, you get to see behind the curtain, right? Who's really pulling the strings. Um, to me, it was incredibly fascinating to see it for the first time. Uh, it just made revealed like, you know, how the power works in, in the corporation. Uh, and I, I think it's very similar. You know, it's like a, the incumbent I'm running against, you know, I, I just see him as a, as a symbol of somebody else, right? It's like, I know that behind him um, is someone who, who, who he listens to, right? And that's big corporations, it's big real estate uh, developers, right? And so I, I know, it's so I, I think it's the same thing. It's like, it's like, we're going to grab our community, our people, and we're going to, uh, uh, bring it up 
you know, the same way we, we did it in, in, in bargaining. Um, I know there's an interesting story that I have, but I don't know if I have time to share it. No, please go for it. Yeah. So one time, uh, for example, we were, we were in bargaining. We're literally, literally in bargaining. We're getting close to reaching an agreement, right? It's like you're moving, you're moving, you're moving. And there was one issue that the, the company didn't want to give up on. And so we told the workers, we said, you know, they're not giving it up. You got to come down right now. And so the banquet server is in the middle of like service, right? They're like serving their guests. All decide to come down. The room was a small negotiating room. And so they all went in, they surrounded the company. Like there was literally like sitting behind them, crossed, they had their arms crossed, like staring at them. And you could feel like just the company saying like, oh shit, <laughs> like we, we have lost control of the banquet staff, right? Like they're in <laughs> this room, they're not serving. And the nego- our negotiator was like, well, <laughs> as you can see, <laughs> you know, they're serious, you know, they're serious. Uh, and in that moment, they, they gave up, uh, they gave up what we wanted. We got what we wanted. So, I mean, going from the bargaining table to like, uh, the, the larger table of LA's 13th district, which I believe includes what Silver Lake, Echo Park, East Hollywood, a few other, a few other neighborhoods, like about how many people are in LA's 13th district? Oh, LA's district has about over two hundred thousand people. So that, that, that's a that's a lot of people. That's a lot of people to organize. So like, just just coming to that table, I mean, like, what 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 is your vision? What are you what are you hoping to like uh, like like activate the 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 passion or beliefs or imagination of voters in the thirteenth district? You know, this is a this is a beautiful district um, for many reasons. Uh, this district voted overwhelmingly for Bernie Sanders. Uh, over sixty percent voted for Bernie. Uh, and if you include Warren uh, on top of that, it was like over 70%. It's incredibly diverse. There's a little Thai town, little Armenia, uh, sort of a large Central American community, which is a lot of different countries, Filipinos. And so, you know, I, when I see this district, I see a, a, a shop, right? I see, uh, I see a hotel because hotels are also segregated by race and class and uh, positions, right? Age. In terms of the jobs people do at, at a big hotel? Oh, Absolutely. Absolutely. Like the room attendants tend to be Latinas, front of house, usually more white. Um, males are very dominated in one. I mean, it's completely segregated by race, gender, and, and class. But, you know, we're able to bring people together. And so, you know, that's been, I've been doing for 15 years. And so when I see this district, I see, uh, you know, I see DSA, which is a very active organization. I'm very proud to say I'm a member for many years. Uh, we have the most members in this district. And so we have a lot of very committed socialists that are ready to do the work on the ground. And so we're going to do it the same way. We're going to do what we do our political campaign. We're going to do a lot of tr- organizing trainings. We're going to teach organizing skills and overlay it with your traditional door knocking uh, operation in, the, in, 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 this, in any political campaign, right? And so we're going to bring these skills in and try to do the same thing, identify, recruit, and train. And just keep doing that over and over and over. And I think over the period of the campaign, which is going to be about a year, I think we're going to, we're going to, we're going to recruit a lot of leaders. We're going to recruit a lot of people who want to do stuff. And then we're going to, we're going to unleash it on the, on the city. All right. Well, uh, listeners to the show might remember from our, the, the Nithia interviews that I did that the LA city council is somewhat unique in the terms of the power that it wields versus the city councils of every other city in America. There's only 13 members of the city council. They represent about 4 million people and Los Angeles. The mayor is not in control of the budget. It's the city council, right? That's right. That's right. It's a, we have what we call so, the weak mayor system. Yeah. The weak mayor system, which means 
getting a Hugo or a Nithia on the city council is a big win. So like a Nithia aside and any like, you know, emergent sort of like left wing or socialist block on the city council, let's say Hugo is becomes city councilman Hugo. What it like what what is your vision? Like what is your agenda? Like what do you what are the things that you want to get done for the LA's thirteenth district and the city at large? Yeah, look, so the one of the powers of of the councilman of the council person, right, is that they control what gets built, they control policing strategy, they control um, you know, how much affordable housing, how we deal with the unhoused, we do a ton of stuff. They have a huge office. And so I think that when we get into office. We're going to completely restructure how we how we use our resources in in, in the office. Uh, you know, we're gonna we're gonna train. We're gonna get a lot of folks who are field deputies. We're gonna be going into the streets, engaging people. Uh, and I think the policy around housing is we're gonna we're gonna demand more of developers. Right. Um, right now, they do like nine percent, ten percent affordable housing. We're gonna demand thirty percent at a minimum. Um, we're going to use our also. Well, I mean, it also depends on what the definition of affordable housing is. I mean, I know here in New York, like that's always the the, the trick is that for any like you know, if you want to build the Barclays Center, oh, you have to build X amount of affordable housing units alongside with it. But then the affordable housing is determined by the median income of the zip code that it's in, which is like seventy or eighty grand a year, which is not really affordable in the sense that people imagine when they think of affordable housing in a city like Los Angeles or New York. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I think that I think you're right. I think the definitions of affordable are, are completely wrong. But the conversations that we're going to have is not just about uh, affordable housing in like the traditional sense, but how we create social housing, right? Public housing. Um, the city hasn't created a single unit of public housing since I think 1955. Right? It's it's an absolute disgrace. Um, and so we have to we have to talk about how housing is a human right. Uh, it's not simply about just being affordable, but that this should not be something that is that is commodified, something that is pro- right. profited up, right? Uh, and I think the you know when you think about people talk about healthcare these days, they I sort of starting to understand that we shouldn't be profiting off of someone's well being. Well, that same thing is about people's housing. Like that is not something that should be viewed as a profit. And and uh, so we're going to have those really uh, serious conversations and try to get to the root of like social inequity uh, in this district. Yeah. I mean, like that, I mean, you talk about like decommodifying housing or removing healthcare from like the marketplace. Mm-hmm. I mean, what you're really talking about is like when market forces are like management of things, something like housing or healthcare is turned over to market forces. Well, then the market will just be like, whatever the market will bear is what you will pay for it. That's right. And like that becomes more of a hostage situation. Cause it's like, what amount of money would you pay to continue breathing or to have a roof over your head? And the answer is almost anything. And when people are in a situation like that, then like they're squeezed in every other aspect of their life. And they're certainly, it's not a situation in which like, uh, you know, neighborhoods, communities, people of any kind can really like, unless you're really affluent or wealthy can thrive or have a decent life at all. Yeah, no, absolutely. Look, the market has failed working people. Right. Like, like, like I see it every single day. I work with working people every single day, uh, you know, before they win a union. Uh, I am there in their homes, uh, talking to them, talking to them, their husbands, their kids. I have seen the working class of the city and how and how they are being they're being punished for being poor. And so uh, and so we, we absolutely have to do something that that turns that system upside down because um, it, it is it's failing most people in the city right now. Um, could you talk briefly about uh, your opponent? 
uh, who is he and like what is the, what is their vision for Los Angeles versus yours? And like, you know, when you talk about uh, like, you know, decommodifying housing in any American city, what you're talking about is taking on the real estate developers and the real estate lobby, which is a big I mean, like, let's be honest, like they control most of the city politics in American cities. So, like, who's your opponent and like, how does your vision of Los Angeles differ from theirs? Yeah, um, Mitchell Farrell is someone who's been in office, uh, worked in the city for over 20 years. Uh, or, to, or, to, or will be 20 years. Uh, and he's been in office for 10. He is completely backed by real estate uh, interest, uh, developer interest, um, you know, folks who, uh, the tech, the gig co- companies, right? Those folks that brought us Prop 22 here in, in California. Um, he is absolutely in bed with Airbnb that is causing massive displacement uh, in the in the city. And I think he's very proud of that. I think he, uh, well, you know, he's he, the criminalization of the unhoused uh, in Echo Park Lake. What, I mean, wasn't he involved with the Echo Park, um, like the clearing out of the, the homeless from Echo Park and putting a fence around the whole thing? Absolutely. I mean, Echo Park was a complete disaster leading up while it happened and, and afterwards. This is he uh, failed to to bring people together on this issue and took uh, extremely uh, punitive approach uh, and and kicked everybody out, put a fence, got rid of the street vendors, uh, paid the LAPD over, I think, close to $2 million in overtime. And through the entire process, only uh, only four people were housed. That's it, four people in, in, in permanent supportive, in permanent supportive housing. Um, and so it was a complete failure, uh, you know, from the beginning to the end. And so we're, that's, uh, we're going to take the opposite approach to that. Now, you, you bring up uh, street vendors, and I know we started out this interview by saying that your parents were street vendors in Los Angeles, but L.A. has been cracking down on street vendors overall, right? You know, it is, it is I mean, I mean, there's a, I have a lot to say about this because, you know, I remember the fight leading up to the ordinance. Um, nobody wanted to do anything for the street vendors. And then all of a sudden, uh, Trump got elected, and all of a sudden, everybody became a friend of the street vendors because, you know, if you recall, um, any criminal... Um, uh, a new criminal charge could have led to deportation. You could get deported. Right, yeah. right. So all of a sudden, everyone's like, oh, my God, we have to decriminalize uh, street vending. You know, we can't allow this to happen. And then Trump's gone and they're back to the same policies. Um, you know, they face constant harassment by the police. They get ticketed every single day. Uh, and because I mean, it's just this attitude that like like street vendors are almost akin to being homeless, like to see, to see someone selling you know mangoes in your neighborhood right. is the same thing as seeing like a like a homeless encampment or something like that. Yeah, it's it's uh it's I think it's it's part of a it's part of a larger uh you know larger thing a larger thing that's happening in in especially in this district of of pushing working class people of color out. Right, we are we are banishing them from where they can live. We're banishing from where they can. Uh, sit, sleep, or lie, and we're banishing them from where they can sell to provide for their families. Like it's, it's just a complete, uh, you know, mechanism of banishing working class people of color. Um, and it's, it's truly, truly despicable. Um, and also a personal one for me because my parents were street vendors growing up. Well, also, I mean, it's just like if, if you think about like the, the city of Los Angeles or New York or most other major American cities, when you talk about like the things that make up that city or the things that people like about it, or uh, have a kind of global influence, a lot of it comes from a food culture that is created by, you know, trucks, street vendors, uh, people like that. And like to, to get rid of it in favor of uh, what, I'm not exactly sure, I don't know, like Starbucks probably, <laughs> would seem to be doing um, uh, sort of incalculable damage to the 
image of the city of Los Angeles, even if you care about things like tourism and like growing the economy? I mean, I mean, talk about, I mean, look, I'm a, I'm a foodie. I'm a self-proclaimed foodie. And, you know, one of my favorite activities is just like going out and patronizing small, you know, small family owned businesses and, and the culture and the food that they bring. And it is, um, it, you know, it's, that's another sort of layer to it, right? It's like, it's tacking a culture, like, and and that's that's the that's the Latin American the Latin American culture, right? You go to Mexico, you go to street vendor is like a part of our life. Like that's just 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 how it is, and and it's it's a culture that we've brought here in the city, and I think it it's made it a a, a better city, and more it, beautiful it, city. And it, uh, all all those dishes, all that food is going to end up in a trendy restaurant, being for like thirty dollars <laughs> a plate eventually, right? Yeah. And you know, like nothing really wrong with that. I mean, like if you can, someone will pay for it, go for it. But like without that, like you're not going to have the 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 cool new next thing that everyone wants to eat. Yeah, no. My, I have a friend who was used to eating eight dollar tacos on the west side because you only get them at the <laughs> restaurants. So I was like, bro, you're, yeah. you're missing out. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, Hugo, uh, we, we got to go now, but uh, just like just 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 for our listeners here, uh, when is the election? And if they'd like to, to help out in any way, if they're in L.A. or the rest of the country, what should they do? Yeah. So the, the election is. Um, no, thank you very much for saying that. Um, the election is June 7th of next year. That's the primary. And then and then we hope uh, we'll be in the top two and then it'll be in November of 2022. Look, I think that look, your, your audience is a national audience. But what happens in Los Angeles will be transported, good or bad, to the rest of the country. Um, you know, that's just kind of kind of how it goes, right? If you've heard of the SWAT team, well, that started in Los Angeles, transported to the rest of the country. And so we're fighting, uh, as I mentioned, a, a deeply uh, corporate, uh, d- d- deeply entrenched in the corporate in the, de- in the corporate machine. And so we're going to win uh, by ha- by having folks just be a part of uh, volunteering, donating. Donating is very important um, because you know uh, Mitch might have organized money, but we have organized people, uh, and I know that that will always win. And so folks can go to uh, our our website. It's uh, ugo ugo2022 uh, com. Uh, that's where folks can can donate and. Um, you know, check out our Twitter, actually, our, our Instagram. We have actually created a uh, a special donation link. Oh, really? Uh, uh, Chapo, That's yes, awesome. Chapo listeners, Hugo Chapo. Uh, the link will be um, in the episode description when this comes out. So, and yeah, like uh, if you're talking about um, a a district where close to seventy percent of the people uh, voted for Bernie Sanders, then you know the the power of individual small donations as, as, as for you know. Not just competing with, but vastly outstripping the combined forces of the real estate lobby and you know Prop Twenty Two tech people. Absolutely. If if everyone listening to this gave five dollars, it would go an incredibly long way uh, in 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 putting a socialist in office and bringing community power to the city. So yeah, appreciate it. Hugo Martinez Soto, thank you so much for your time. Best of luck in the primary. We will be uh, following you uh, every step of the way. <laughs> yeah, thank you so much. I'm happy to be here and hopefully come on next time. Come on time. Uh, well, I'll, next time I'm in LA, I'll be <laughs> sure to drop you a line. All right. Thank you so much. All right. Cheers. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Yeah.